Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the program, How Science Can Guide Practice Placental-Based Autographs. This program is supported by an educational grant from MyMedics and provided by the North American Center for Continuing Medical Education, uh, an HMP company. My name is Gregory Schultz, and I am a professor of obstetrics gynecology and director of the Institute for Wound Research at the University of Florida. The major learning objectives for the presentation today include reviewing very briefly the molecular and cellular imbalances that disrupt the process called dynamic reciprocity communication, which occurs between wound cells and the extracellular matrix in chronic wounds. And the disruption of this dynamic reciprocity communication actually is a major factor that prevents wound healing. And then I want to explain the very unique properties of placental-based allografts and how the appropriate use of these allografts can help to restore the dynamic reciprocity and lead to stimulated healing. Let's take just a moment and review with you the four phases of normal wound healing in the skin because we want to see what goes wrong when wounds fail to heal. And as you're aware, the first phase of hemostasis occurs when there is an injury to the vascularized tissue like the skin. And in this hemostasis phase, the fibrin clot forms, and importantly, the platelets in blood interact with the fibrin matrix, which stimulates them to degranulate. And that releases a, a large number of preformed and active growth factors and cytokines right in the area of the injury. And it's those growth factors and cytokines diffusing away from the wound bed that actually stimulates the next phase, which is the inflammatory phase. This is characterized by the migration from the surrounding uninjured tissue of neutrophils within the first 24 hours, and then a little bit later, about 48 hours, uh, followed by the uh, macrophages. Now, as you know, the inflammatory process is extremely important because those neutrophils and macrophages engulf and generate reactive oxygen species within the endocytic vesicles that they've used to engulf bugs. And they basically oxidize and kill the en engulfed bacteria. In addition, the inflammatory cells, particularly the neutrophils, secrete active proteases, such as the matrix metalloproteases, or MMPs, and neutrophil elastase. And those proteases released during this inflammatory phase do a couple of important things. They help to do an initial enzymatic debridement and remove the damaged and denatured matrix proteins like collagen and fibronectin and laminin that are critical in this dynamic reciprocity communication between the wound cells and the matrix. 
And that allows new, active, intact matrix proteins to replace them so that the dynamic reciprocity signaling can occur. In addition, the inflammatory process is important for clearing both debris as well as other bacteria, allowing the wound then to move into the third phase or the repair phase. And this is characterized by that initial fibrin matrix of the wound bed being replaced by a more natural and active matrix, the initial scar matrix. So the fibroblasts adjacent to the wound move into that fibrin provisional wound matrix. They begin to synthesize the collagen and the hyaluronic acid and the components that will replace the weak fibrin provisional matrix with the initial scar matrix. In addition, we have the vascular endothelial cells and the adjacent tissues that are activated and chemotactically drawn into the ischemic area of the initial fibrin matrix, and they reform to a large extent the damaged vasculature so that the metabolic activity of the fibroblasts and the other cells um, can be uh, satisfied. And then finally, when the matrix is remodeled enough and there's enough new collagen produced in the fibrin matrix, the epithelial cells, uh, particularly at the edge of the wound, if it's a full thickness wound, or in the epithelial stem cell niches within the hair follicles, will proliferate and begin to migrate over the wound bed. And finally, some of the fibroblasts that have moved into the fibrin matrix will actually convert into myofibroblasts. And they'll grab the matrix with their integrin receptors and contract it up to about 20% in human full thickness injuries. Now, we normally think then that, that the wound is healed. It's epithelialized, it's, it's contracted a little bit, but as you know, the wound continues to undergo remodeling. So in the final fourth phase, from about six months to nine months after the epithelium has closed the wound, that irregular scar matrix that was initially laid down gets broken down by the controlled actions of proteases and replaced with a much more normal architecture of the scar, as you can see in the two left-hand blocks. But notice that the scar tissue is never identical to the uninjured matrix that is surrounding the injury. So this is repair, not um, regeneration. And then finally, for us today especially, one of the problems that has been observed and documented in, in multiple uh, clinical studies now is that one of the major causes that prevents acute wounds from healing is a chronic inflammatory phase. And as we'll see, in large part, that's done uh, at this because of and, and due to the stimulation caused by both planktonic as well as biofilm bacteria that stimulate this chronic inflammation. So again, just to remind you this, this important concept of dynamic reciprocity in wound healing, 
it turns out that multiple laboratory as well as human and animal studies have shown that it's really critical for wound cells to be able to communicate effectively with the components of the extracellular matrix. And the matrix then actually can modify the differentiation and activation of the wound cells. So part of, as we'll see, one of the key things that occurs with the use of uh, placental-based allografts is that the matrix and components of the placental allografts help to very quickly reestablish this important dynamic reciprocity in an injured and especially a chronic wound bed so that the synthesis and remodeling can appropriately occur and we will have a repair of the injury in um, both a rapid but as well a functional um, mechanism. So using that as the background for what should happen in normal wounds, um, we need to ask the question, is there a common molecular pathophysiology that occurs um, in chronic wounds? So you can see in this slide that one of the, um, that, that there are, although these are four major types of chronic wounds and they all have different comorbidities and uh, properties, it turns out that these are really a lot more similar at a molecular level than they are different. And work from multiple laboratories now has generated what we've come to call the hypothesis of chronic wound pathophysiology. So when these acute wounds begin to slow and, and stop, what happens is that there's usually some repeated tissue injury, there's usually some ischemia, but importantly, we now understand is that although there are contaminating and colonizing bacteria, in many cases, the inflammatory cells don't clear it well enough, and these bacteria can convert into the biofilm phenotype that we'll look at in more detail. And the problem and challenge is that these biofilms and planktonic bacteria are incredibly inflammatory, both to our adaptive immune system as well as our, our innate immune system, our toll-like receptor system. And so these factors contribute to extending or prolonging the um, inflammation phase. We find in acute wound fluids, as I'll show you, a, a low levels of proteases and cytokines, but when we have this repeated bacterial uh, inflammation stimulus with pro-inflammatory cytokines like TNF and IL-1 and IL-6, that this prolongs inflammatory phase, brings in more and more neutrophils, macrophages, and mast cells. And they do exactly what they normally should do. <clears throat> they activate, they release proteases and reactive oxygen species. But instead of those proteases only removing the denatured matrix, they begin to have off-target effects and they will begin to accidentally uh, and devastatingly degrade growth factors, their receptors, as well as functional extracellular matrix components. And this leads to a reduction in cell migration and cell proliferation, which we see clinically as a destruction of the dynamic reciprocity signaling that makes an acute wound convert into a non-healing wound. I 
explain to you that biofilms within the last uh, seven to eight years have been appreciated to play a major role in, in helping to stimulate this chronic inflammation. And <clears throat> recent data now indicates that biofilms, such as shown in the center panel B uh, in scanning electron microscopy, can be identified in about 80% of biopsies of, of chronic wounds. It doesn't mean that all of the wound surface is a biofilm, but it means that there are locations within the wound bed where biofilm bacteria structures can be identified. And as you see in panel A, another important concept for us to understand is that in this uh, stain of a cross-section of a biopsy through a chronic wound, you can see on the surface of the wound bed uh, microcolonies of gram-positive cocci, but importantly, under the surface of the wound bed at about uh, 50 microns to 100 microns depth, we will frequently find large colonies of biofilms. So biofilms are not just on the surface, but they can also be in the wound bed at deeper levels, which makes it important for us to understand how and why we should debreed effectively. And then finally, just quickly, the components of the biofilm exopolymeric uh, uh, substance or matrix are incredibly inflammatory to our innate immune system. In panel E, you can see a uh, stain of a biopsy through a chronic wound. The, the green rods are, are a bacillus that is stained, but importantly, the red dye staining that you see is actually uh, binding to free extracellular bacterial DNA. And our innate immune system, our toll-like receptor 7, has actually evolved to be able to recognize unique DNA sequences that are found only in bacterial DNA, the so-called CPG islands. And so the matrix itself of the biofilm is very inflammatory to our innate immune system and again emphasizes that, that just killing the biofilm without removing the matrix isn't completely effective because we need to also remove the matrix of the biofilm to reduce the inflammatory stimulus. So the, another major question is how does this immunological response to the biofilm actually cause tissue damage and impair healing. And then this, this classic uh, cartoon diagram that Bill Costerton uh, published in science uh, in the early days of understanding biofilms, he uh, illustrated in panel A that normal planktonic bacteria, the little white ovals, are usually very effectively controlled by both our antibodies, the little yellow Ys, um, and our inflammatory cells, as you can see, uh, engulfing one of the free, uh, non-attached planktonic bacteria. And importantly, our antibiotics, the little uh, blue Xs, are also very effective at killing rapidly proliferating planktonic bacteria. But if the planktonic bacteria begin to attach and begin to synthesize this exopolymeric matrix shown in panel B, now our antibodies and uh, antibiotics have difficulty penetrating it. In panel C, our neutrophils and macrophages have a great difficulty in trying to engulf and kill these structures that are much bigger than they are. And in panel D, the result is that 
the chronic inflammation that occurs due to the presence of the biofilm in its matrix leads to chronically elevated levels of proteases and reactive oxygen species that accidentally degrade protein components that are essential for healing and the wound stops. To give you just a quick example of how dysregulated and imbalanced the protease levels are in acute versus chronic wounds, you can see in the left panel where we've plotted the concentration of the activity of one of the major matrix metalloproteases, the collagenase. And you can see that in acute wounds, there's very low levels of these proteases after the first couple of days. In contrast, you can see that wound fluids collected from multiple patients with all of the major classes of chronic wounds actually on average have about 50 times the concentration of active collagenase that we see in acute healing wounds. And in fact, if we measure the level of collagenase activity in non-healing venous ulcers as they uh, come into a hospital or clinic, we see that the levels are very high and, and quite wide ranging, up, up to even 150 times the concentration we would find in a healing wound. But importantly, as those chronic venous leg ulcer patients actually got good biofilm-based wound care, the inflammation was reduced, now the protease activity levels in each of the patients um, almost irrevocably reduced to levels that are compatible with healing. Now, just finally, what do these proteases do? Well, one of the key proteins that, that can be degraded by the proteases is this multi-domain binding protein called fibronectin. And that's a very important protein for our epithelial cells to attach to and migrate in the fibrin provisional matrix. And as you can see in the leftmost panel, if we do a polyacrylamide gel that characterizes the size of intact fibronectin, you can see it's this very large band on the gel. In contrast, if we look at fibronectin in venous leg ulcer patients or in diabetic ulcer patients, you can see that almost all of the fibronectin has been degraded to very small molecular weight bands. Now that's very different than what we see in healing mastectomy wound fluid patients where the fibronectin is in fact still intact. And then finally, if we add the mastectomy fluid to chronic wound fluid, we can see that the intact fibronectin in the healing wound fluid is rapidly broken down again into these smaller uh, fragments. And we can visualize this, for example, in a biopsy, a cross-sectional biopsy of a chronic venous leg ulcer. And so in the top panel, you can see when we use an antibody that immunostains only intact fibronectin, there's fibronectin in the adjacent skin and at the ulcer edge, but there's no intact fibronectin staining in the ulcer bed. In contrast, about two weeks later, when this patient got good wound care, biofilm was reduced, proteases are reduced, now there's extensive intact fibronectin staining that reappears 
in the wound bed, and now the epithelial cells are able, through dynamic reciprocity and communication, they can begin to migrate across that wound bed because the proteases are low and the essential proteins are intact. Another example is the level of platelet-derived growth factor, an, an, an essential protein that is, is released by platelets, but also uh, by uh, the macrophages and wound cells. And you can see immunostaining in normal skin shows almost no brown staining for intact PDGF. That's because there's very little turnover and proliferation in normal skin. In contrast, in panel B, you see that in the healing wound, there's huge amounts of active PDGF because that's a factor that is important in promoting healing. In contrast, in panel C, when we try to find intact PDGF in chronic wound bed, there's essentially none, but when that chronic wound is treated appropriately, proteases are reduced, now there's substantial amounts of intact PDGF that can be detected, and now that chronic wound begins to heal, as shown in panel D. Now, this overall concept of the barriers to healing has been uh, summarized and, and captured in a new guidance paper that tries to pull together these concepts of in chronic inflammation, proteases, and how to rapidly change and rebalance the uh, molecular and protease environment in wounds. So in the first few days, because almost all chronic wounds, when they are, have been present for more than about a week, are going to have biofilms, it's important to do aggressive debridement. Use antimicrobial treatments that are effective at killing and reducing biofilm bacteria. And then as the wound comes out of the inflammatory phase, then you can step down in both the frequency of debridement as well as in the aggressiveness and spectrum of the antimicrobial treatments. And finally, when the molecular imbalances have been reestablished into levels consistent with healing, the wound will start to heal. And in many cases, that's adequate. But in patients that have other comorbidities like age or diabetes that would tend to reduce the rate of healing, you can then step up from standard care to use advanced therapies. And this is particularly important where the placental allografts can add a uh, extra stimulation to healing in those patients whose standard rate and, and uh, progress on healing is, is not adequate and, and needs to be helped. So shifting then again to the placental allografts, we've seen that in the step down then step up concept, placental allografts uh, have the potential to really make a significant impact in the way a wound will heal. Now, in case you've forgotten a little bit of the placental anatomy and physiology, let me just remind you very quickly about where the amnion, chorion, and placenta, and uterus all fit together. So on the left-hand panel, you see an early conceptus that is implanting into the endometrium, and as it implants, eventually it will form a mature placenta, and the exterior fetal 
membranes, the amnion and chorion, will provide the uh, encased uh, surface structures that the fetus and the amniotic, that will contain the fetus and the amniotic fluid. Now, for the purposes of what we're going to talk about, we also need to dig just a little bit deeper and understand the components of the amnion and chorion tissue. And the diagrams here, as well as the relatively extensive explanation, basically say that, look, the amnion is the surface of the uh, fetal tissue that is in direct contact with the amniotic fluid. It consists essentially of an epithelial cell layer and a basement membrane. Underlying that, still fetal tissue, is the chorion layer of the tissue structure. And it consists predominantly of matrix proteins as well as the uh, choreo cells, the chorionic cells, the syncytiotrophoblast cells of the chorion. And these two layers are attached, but they have a relatively weak ER attachment to each other. And so if we look is at um, the histological cross-sections of an amnion or chorion, you can see that obviously the majority of the amnion-chorion combined tissue is comprised of chorion. Um, and uh, that the, the amnion, as I said, consists of the internal epithelial cell layer that is in direct contact with the amniotic fluid, and the chorion is the tissue component that provides most of the, of the, uh, of the structure to the chorion-amnion unit. Now, it turns out that it's relatively easy to separate amnion and chorion from a normal uh, placenta, as you can see in this tissue uh, uh, example here where uh, Dr. Uh, Will Lee has uh, obtained a, a normal term placenta and is demonstrating how it can separate, how one can separate the amnion and chorion layers. Now this is also important for us to understand that this just isn't matrix. This, in fact, is an incredibly rich source of a large number, over, over 285 identified proteins that regulate key aspects of wound healing and, of course, fetal development. And uh, this is a, a listing of the proteins that have been identified uh, using uh, a variety of techniques, including uh, quadrupole mass spec, um, in a um, dehydrated human amnion chorion membrane, the so-called DHACM. You'll see that abbreviation used multiple times. Now, the point of this is, is that there isn't just one regulatory protein or two or three. There are multiple regulatory proteins, and these can influence all of the major uh, activities within a healing wound, including chemotaxis, inflammation, migration of cells, proliferation, uh, angiogenesis, etc. So there's a huge um, uh, range of activities that are influenced by the protein components in the amnion chorion. 
I indicated to you that one of the big problems in chronic wounds is frequently there are too many elevated proteases. So focusing just on the matrix metalloproteases and their protease inhibitors, the tissue inhibitors of metalloproteases, the TIMPs, <clears throat> you can see that the inhibitors of the MMP in the preserved dehydrated human amnion chorion membrane are actually at a much higher ratio and amount than the proteases. They're about 28 to 1 ratio. So in large part, what that means is, is that the um, amnion chorion membrane unit is actually very effective at providing a source of these inhibitors of the matrix metalloproteases. And that becomes important in trying to rapidly rebalance these levels. In addition, just, just to give you an idea of, of some of the relative abundance between the presence of several key proteins like laminin or growth factors like TGF-beta or fibroblast growth factor or PDGF, you can see that, that this is, in the amnior and chorion unit, this is much, much different than what we see in a mature pigskin dermis. For example, in the lower left-hand panel, uh, immunostaining for laminin, you can see that basically there's a, a huge amount of laminin protein in the amnion chorion dehydrated matrix, but in contrast, dermis of skin of adult pigs has almost no laminin. And similarly, when you look at the measurements, you can see that, again, there's almost no growth factor activity that's, that's present for many of the growth factors in dermal matrix compared to the abundant amounts that are present in the amnion chorion unit. And in fact, if, if we look at where are these key cytokines and growth factors located within the amnion chorion unit, you can see that a, a, a huge amount of the growth factors and cytokines are present in the chorion layer rather than just the amnion layer. And in fact, that's because the amnion uh, or the chorion is about three times the, the thickness, the mass of the amnion layer. And so that's where a majority of these regulatory proteins are found. Both the anti-inflammatory or, for example, the MMP, inhibitor, uh, MMP inhibitors are predominantly found in the chorion layer of the amnion-chorion matrix. As shown in this slide, the effects of the extracts from the uh, dehydrated human amnion-chorion membrane uh, has very dramatic effects on the proliferation of cultured human dermal fibroblasts. Now, typically, as we saw also, the uh, chorion is the primary area where these growth factors and cytokines are found. And so the extracts of the amnion or the chorion or the combination of the amnion-chorion also reflects the biological effects of those on these cultured fibroblasts. So you can see that the areas of the explant of either amnion, chorion, or the combination of amnion, chorion, 
um, at three square centimeters, one and a half square centimeters, or 0.7 square centimeters, when those extracts of those amounts of tissue are added to the dermal fibroblasts and then the cell numbers are measured, you can see that there's a very dramatic improvement or increase in the number of cells um, when uh, compared to the amnion or the chorion, the light blue or the dark blue bars. And then, of course, when we have the, the combined amnion-chorion unit, there's a slightly higher amount of cell division. But, but basically, this confirms a couple of things, that the chorion is the part of the amnion-chorion membrane that contains most of the biologically active uh, cytokines and growth factors, and that in this typical cell culture assay, that the extracts are very potent at stimulating proliferation of normal human dermal fibroblasts which obviously are going to be very important in terms of healing injuries and chronic wounds. Now, another very important and relatively unique aspect of the dehydrated human amnion chorion membrane um, is that when these growth factors and cytokines diffuse out of the dressing into the wound bed, they can actually be uh, picked up by the circulation and circulate to areas where stem cells are normally generated, and especially that's in the bone marrow. So as you see in this slide, the, the diagram, the cartoon is showing that the factors released from the amnion-chorion membrane actually increase the migration and the chemotactic movement of bone marrow mesenchymal stem cells from the bone marrow through the blood to the area of the chronic wound where the amnion membrane is implanted. And so this stem cell recruitment, this mesenchymal stem cell recruitment is, is a very important component in terms of promoting wound healing uh, and especially the uh, effects of angiogenesis. Now, this type of activity was actually demonstrated in a, a very important and relatively unique animal experiment in which green fluorescent protein mice that contain this, this trackable uh, fluorescent protein were actually surgically grafted with a normal mouse. And then the normal mouse had skin wounds created, as you can see in the upper right-hand portion of the uh, slide. And the amount of stem cells that are basically migrating from the green fluorescent protein mouse that's surgically grafted onto the normal mouse was measured in the different uh, wound areas. And these uh, tissues were analyzed at day 3, 7, 14, and 28 after the implant of the dehydrated human amniocorum membrane was applied to these um, wound sites on the mouse. Now, as you can see at um, day 3, 
7, 14, and 28 in healthy skin, there's relatively few of the green fluorescent protein stem cells coming from uh, the joint mouse um, in the uh, area of healthy skin. But when there is a uh, amniotic membrane implanted, the purple and very dark blue bars show that there's a tremendous significant increase in the number of these stem cells that are green fluorescent protein uh, marked that move into the dehydrated human amnion chorion membrane. Now the, the controls of having a sham implant or a, uh, a amnion uh, membrane that does not contain all of these growth factors, um, you can see that there's a tremendous amount of recruitment from the green fluorescent protein conjoined mouse stem cells into the recipient mouse at the implant site. So this, this really gives the physiological data that supports the concept shown in the previous slide where the active growth factors in cytokine from the dehydrated human amniochorium membrane actually can cause mobilization and migration of the uh, host's mesenchymal stem cells from the bone marrow into the area of the membrane implant. Now, simply recruiting these cells from the bone marrow uh, into the area of the implant is beneficial, but we want those mesenchymal stem cells to actually differentiate and, and proliferate and migrate into uh, the uh, dehydrated uh, amnion chorion membrane. And so this uh, diagram, this cartoon, basically shows what happens after they get recruited into the area of the amnion chorion implant. And again, because of the active growth factors and cytokines that stimulate those stem cells to differentiate into vascular endothelial cells, they actually then can stimulate proliferation and actual formation of new capillaries, that is an, a proliferation phase as well as finally an angiogenesis phase. So what you see in this diagram um, is in the left panel the recruitment of the stem cells, the microvascular endothelial cells coming in. They begin to proliferate again in response to the additional growth factors that are present in the amniocoron membrane. And finally, differentiation and movement, angiogenesis, creation of new capillaries uh, at the interface between the wound bed and the amniocoron membrane and eventually will stimulate new granulation tissue formation. Now the reason that the dehydrated human amniocoral membrane can both mobilize stem cells from the bone marrow to come into the area of uh, the membrane as well as stimulate those cells to differentiate into 
vascular endothelial cells and begin to form new vessels is because, as shown in Table 1, there are a substantial number and amount of these key angiogenic growth factors in cytokines. And, and just to indicate, those, those contain some of the, the most well-known, the VEGF, vascular endothelial cell growth factor, uh, as well as angiogenin, um, the basic fibroblast growth factor, which is very, very structurally similar to um, uh, the uh, other angiogenic factors, and, of course, platelet-derived growth factor, BB, which, again, is very structurally similar to VEGF. And so there's substantial amounts of, of these um, angiogenic, pro-angiogenic growth factors and cytokines within the dehydrated human amnion chorion membrane. And then finally in the right-hand portion, um, this is the actual formation of new vessels. So we've, we've shown where the bone marrow stem cells from the green fluorescent uh, protein mouse migrate to the area of the implant. We've looked at the abundant growth factors that are present and especially the angiogenic factors. And this is kind of the final important take-home message is, is that they actually form lots of vessels. And so you can see that um, uh, particularly by day uh, 28, that uh, in the area of an injury that has been treated with the membrane, that the active growth factors and cytokines from the amnion chorion membrane are actually stimulating the proliferation, migration, and formation of, uh, of new vessels um, into the ends of the graft area in these mice. So this really then uh, pulls all of this biochemistry into relevance of being able to actually promote new vessel formation above what would happen in just a normal injury, um, and especially uh, at uh, the later days of day 28. So with that background of the biochemistry and structure of the amnion chorion membrane and the effects that we see both with dermal fibroblasts in culture and with the um, implants in, in uh, mice uh, in, in terms of stimulating angiogenesis in wound areas. Let's, let's look now at what happens uh, when the placental allografts are actually used in some different clinical applications. Quickly of the placental allografts, well, it turned out the original rebirth, if you will, of the amnion chorion uh, treatment actually was not in skin wounds. It was actually in ophthalmology. And uh, Dr. Sheffer Thang down at University of Miami was one of the first ophthalmologists to realize that this could have a very important impact in promoting healing of uh, a, a very serious uh, corneal epithelium and stromal injuries. And so you can see in these two examples that in the left two panels of C and D uh, that the treatment of the injured corneal epithelium with amniotic membrane laid onto the cornea, there's a, a beautiful result and repair of the 
damaged cornea, whereas in panel E and F, when just standard medical care is provided, not with an amnion membrane, you can see the very devastating uh, scarring that occurs that impairs vision. And in fact, actually, amniotic membrane uh, transplantation now has become a very standard approach to the care of acute uh, ocular burns, particularly from, from chemical burns. Another area where uh, amnion, amnion chorion units have, have found a, a tremendous application is in dental healing. And so you can see in, in these three panels, the left panel where a surgical tooth uh, has been uh, excised and there's a large uh, gap in the mandibular bone. You can see if an amnion membrane is placed into that uh, tooth extraction uh, site and uh, then the gingival tissue is uh, pulled across that, that after two weeks and five weeks that there's a tremendous uh, impact and uh, beneficial effects on healing. And you no, know, just another example of kind of an unusual application of, of using um, a, uh, in this case, a viable cryopreserved placental membrane. Instead of being a dehydrated, this is actually a cryopreserved placental membrane that still has some viable cells in it. And you can see in this in this poor uh, patient's example where there's this large uh, ulcer on the tip of the uh, nose that um, without uh, doing extensive surgery, the uh, treatment of the ulcer with a uh, cryopreserved placental membrane is actually able to rapidly heal and produce an exceptionally uh, positive cosmetic outcome for, for a wound that would normally be very difficult to heal and would produce a bad scar. Well, coming back into the, the more familiar re region and area for us in terms of chronic skin wounds, uh, there, as I'll show you, multiple examples now of very high level, level one uh, evidence that amnion chorion membranes can uh, make a very important contributions to healing. So, for example, again, in uh, the, this image from, from Will Lee, you can see where an amnion uh, dressing has completely healed this very, very difficult uh, uh, lower uh, ankle injury, venous leg ulcer injury. In fact, in a <clears throat> very uh, critical, randomized, controlled, multi-center clinical trial, uh, the uh, um, probability of healing, that is the, the, the percentage of healing, when patients were treated with the uh, dehydrated human amnion chorion membrane unit, that in the blue line there was a tremendously improved uh, probability of healing um, after uh, the 80 days, uh, a very high uh, uh, p-value of 0.01. In addition, uh, if we look at uh, diabetic foot ulcers, not, not venous, now we're talking about diabetic, and again, using the same kind of a high-level randomized controlled trial uh, uh, format generating uh, level one data, you can again see that both the uh, treat that the treatment with the dehydrated amnion chorion membrane um, has a significant increase rate of uh, the wound area that is healed, the top blue bar, compared to um, a bioengineered skin substitute in the light blue or just standard of care in, in the purple line. 
And in the right panel, uh, plotting the data just slightly different, but the probability, uh, or the, I'm sorry, the uh, percentage of patients with wound closure, again, is very significantly increased at a much quicker time point using the uh, amnion chorion membrane. And finally, the uh, more recently, um, the other major part of the uh, placenta, that is the umbilical cord unit, has also been uh, generated into a uh, commercially available dressing. And so, uh, again, treatment much like with the amnion chorion, but also treating diabetic foot ulcers in a multicenter randomized controlled trial showed a highly statistically significant increase in the probability of healing uh, for patients uh, treated with the umbilical cord allograft. Now, trying to pull all of this together, um, we, we talked about the step-down, step-up concept, um, and along with that, there is now a, a more of an update of the original wound bed preparation and the TIME acronym, the T-I-M-E abbreviation. And uh, this was recently updated to include the additional understanding that besides just correcting the tissue, the inflammation, the moisture, and, and the wound epithelium and edge, we need to think about stepping up. Uh, and so now we've added an R for repair and regeneration, and finally an S for the social and patient-related factors, because these patients and their wounds are not separate. They're not uh, uh, isolated from their wound. And so the original concept of time has been expanded to appropriately include these advanced treatments, uh, such as the amnion chorion membranes that can significantly accelerate the repair or regeneration once these other four components, the TIME components of the wound bed, are addressed and normalized. And then finally, obviously, the effectiveness of these advanced treatments is very dependent upon the patient's understanding and the patient's um, cooperation and, and the um, own goal of the patient and the patient's caregiver and family to allow the environment to exist where these advanced treatments will actually make a difference. So finally, in, in conclusion, just to review, we, we talked about dynamic reciprocity and, and why this is so important and required for healing, and that how it becomes disrupted in chronic wounds due to these elevated proteases and reactive oxygen species that are usually caused by persistent biofilm infection. And as we saw with the step-down then step-up concept, that placental allografts are a very important and novel bioactive material that contains multiple growth factors, cytokines, matrix proteins, that help to quickly restore this dynamic reciprocity signaling and convert chronic wounds into healing wounds. And that's due to the fact that the placental allograft dressings are, are not just intercollagen. They have many critical growth factors, cytokines, matrix components, protease inhibitors, and working together, those combination of agents actually stimulate these key processes of proliferation and migration. And now we appreciate recruitment of these mesenchymal stem cells and hepatic uh, and uh, uh, other angiogenic stem cells into the area of the dressing. And that the clinical effectiveness of these placental allografts has been unequivocally demonstrated uh, not only in other indications like ophthalmic and dental, but more importantly for us in randomized uh, controlled multicenter 
trials for venous leg ulcers, diabetic foot ulcers, and, and other types of chronic wounds where um, compared to the standard of care or, or other less active agents, they have a very significant impact in the uh, healing percentage and rate. So I hope this has been helpful in understanding what goes wrong when wounds don't heal, how placental allografts um, are able, based on their multiple components, to correct those imbalances and actually in, uh, can be employed in a, a timer's concept of step-down, step-up treatment to really improve healing in many of the, of the difficult patients. The conclusion slide lists in relatively condensed format the, the key points to come away with from uh, uh, this webinar. And I think it's also somewhat useful to try to say how, to, <laughs> how does this fit into a, a real wound clinic. And in my opinion, I think the dehydrated amnion chorion membrane is a real um, advance in terms of the advanced treatments that are available now for treating a wide variety of challenging wounds. One of the other areas where I think this will have very significant impact um, is not just in these chronic wounds, but also in a relatively large number of acute wounds. So uh, one of the areas that I look forward to seeing uh, clinical trials and, and studies done is uh, certainly using the uh, amnion chorion membrane in uh, trauma and especially in burn patients. Clearly, one of the major challenges for burn patients and for uh, trauma burn surgeons is to reduce the progression of deep second-degree burns converting into full-thickness third-degree burns. And one of the biggest components that leads to the conversion of second degree to third degree burns, which obviously have to require um, eventually autologous skin grafts, um, is preventing the second degree burn wound bed from developing further ischemia, apoptosis, and converting into a totally devascularized uh, wound bed. <clears throat> now, we looked at the ability of the dehydrated amnion chorion membrane in animal studies as well as in the uh, chronic wound studies to really stimulate healing. We saw a large portion of that had an effect on the vasculature. And it did that in part by drawing bone marrow mesenchymal stem cells into the area of the wound and then also stimulating proliferation and differentiation of those stem cells into um, vascular endothelial cells and promoting capillary growth. Well, this, I think, would be an excellent situation where you could, in theory, apply the amnion chorion membrane to deep second-degree burns early in treatment. Uh, that is, even uh, in the earliest stages of treatment after um, 
just the debridement of the uh, necrotic dead tissue and applying an amnion chorion membrane uh, to that wound bed and in theory reducing the conversion of that into a, a full thickness third degree burn. So we, we focused in this presentation uh, predominantly on the applications in, in chronic wounds, but um, my colleagues in the uh, level one trauma unit uh, here at the University of Florida are very interested in and are uh, actively assessing uh, the ability of these uh, products to help them in terms of the uh, treatment of large burn patients, but also that have significant amounts of deep uh, second degree burns with the ultimate goal of being able to reduce the conversion into third degree burns. Then finally, one other point that I want to emphasize is that in the step down, step up concept for uh, treatment of chronic wounds, one of the key aspects is that almost all of those really chronic wounds after several weeks of, of non-healing will have a significant inflammatory component produced in large part by the presence of the bacterial biofilms. That chronic inflammation leads to elevated proteases and reactive oxygen species that we looked at that destroy the proteins that are essential for healing. So the most optimal use of the amnion chorion membrane is within that context of the wound bed preparation with the idea of biofilm-based wound care and then with the appropriate timing of the use of the amnion chorion membrane to take advantage, maximum advantage of its, of its tremendous uh, wound healing uh, activities. And this also becomes important when we, we, we look at the ability to assess when a wound is optimal uh, for applying of the uh, amnion chorion membrane um, because there's obviously there is a cost issue that, that needs to be addressed in the overall concept of, of how to most effectively and efficiently heal those wounds. Uh, so I, I think there is, um, because of the presence of of protease inhibitors, they uh, the, they allow the uh, amnion chorion membrane to actually be um, applicable uh, in that early transition stage between a chronically inflamed wound and a a wound bed that is um, under appropriate inflammation control. So I, I think the amnion chorion membrane, as I say, has lots of opportunities for uh, applications outside just the chronic wound and certainly the uh, major areas in trauma and because of the variety of components that are present uh, in the amnion chorion membrane uh, including protease inhibitors uh, it probably is, has a broader range of wounds that it can be applied to even earlier in the concept of biofilm-based wound care. So this concludes the presentation. Uh, I hope you found this presentation insightful. Uh, please join us for the third and final presentation uh, titled Optimizing Outcomes by Assessing the Evidence uh, 
Well, Central based on allografts, and this will be presented by uh, Dr. Dennis Orgill, who is a very distinguished uh, plastic surgeon.